Welcome to our Roots Say That We're Sisters podcast. This podcast series is sponsored by the Marquette Forum with support from Marquette University's Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion and the Haggerty Museum of Art. It's an extension of a Marquette University mural project to highlight and uplift diverse women-identified individuals whose images and contributions have been systematically made invisible. The artist, Mauricio Ramirez, used photographs of BIPOC women associated with Marquette as inspiration for the images in the mural. The Our Roots Say That We're Sisters podcast preserves the stories of female-identifying students, faculty, staff, and alumni who've used their gifts to make a meaningful impact on others, especially those who remain unsung heroes. I'm your host, Sheena Carey, from the Diedrich College of Communication. Joining us today is Dr. Joya Creer, Acting Vice President for Inclusive Excellence. Joya, thanks for coming in and agreeing to share your story. What is this story that you want to share with us today? Well, first I want to say thank you for inviting me. I think the story I'd like to share is how I got to this point in life. Originally, I was born in Detroit, Michigan. I am the only child of married parents, uh, both who are, have roots in the South, but both families migrated to Michigan. I had both sets of grandparents in my life, and to me, I thought everybody had that situation until as I became older and realized, oh, people have different family constellations, different experiences. Everybody is not from Michigan, but it was just a very good family experience from my perspective. I think being an only child really had a lot of influence in the sense of I grew up in this time where children were seen and not heard, um, but I grew up with a lot of adults. Um, and so for me, I thought I was just a little adult. I would interact with uncles and aunts and uncle cousins and, you know, dealing with the age and generation gap. Uh, but again, felt very loved, but didn't know what I didn't know until I got older. So what part of the South did your parents come from? My father's from Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama. Then my mom is from Georgia. So how do you identify? So I identify as Black or African-American female. So how'd you get onto this particular path that you're on right now? I will say it started probably when I was very young. I've always been kind of the older cousin in my generation. And aunts and uncles, even though they were older, would always ask me advice about their kids. Um, and for whatever reason, they felt like I would have the answer. And that just continued. I've always been that person that people ask, you know, for advice. I'm usually the listening ear in my friendship group, even with colleagues. And so I ended up going into psychology uh, and, and one of the few people in my family who decided that really early, probably in high school, had never taken a psychology course, but knew I was just intrigued about why people do what they do um, and thought, okay, psychology sounded interesting. Then decided to take a psychology course my last year in high school. Again, thought it was interesting, but I can't say that I saw myself in it just yet. You know, at that point, they're talking about Freud, talking about a lot of males, a lot of white males. Um, and kind of figured, okay, eventually they'll get to me um, as a black woman. And so then decided to be, a, a, at the time, a psych minor. I was going to go to med school. And, yeah, I took microbiology, and that lasted all the six weeks of that drop-ad period, and I promptly dropped that course. Yeah, organic chemistry got me. As my mother would say, I was earning a D. I spent hours and hours studying for a D. I was like, wow, okay, not my calling. 
always been interested in science, though, and so finding a natural science made sense to me and decided to switch into a major in psychology. Unfortunately, went to Howard University where you could talk about, you know, kind of the pioneers of psychology, but also talk about, you know, development from a black person's perspective. And me being a black person who's part of the diaspora was a different identity that I hadn't really thought about until I left Michigan. And so also being surrounded by so many diverse people, many from have roots in Africa and those who were of European descent as well being in Washington, D.C. And so it opened my eyes to just the level of diversity within my own community, which I thought I had it on lock in Michigan and I did not. So how would you say your identity has informed the choices that you've made about your path? I will say literally going to Howard. uh, My mother loves this story. Two weeks before we're off to college, we don't know where we're going. My parents moved from Michigan to Connecticut my last year in high school. So I went to a different high school in Connecticut, really didn't know a lot of people. And I wanted to decide between Howard University, which we had visited, loved, you know, felt very much at home there, and Michigan State, because it was allowing me to go back home, connect with friends. You know, there was no internet at the time and just felt like I want to go home and decided literally that we had to leave. My mother was like, we're going to buy a plane ticket somewhere or a train ticket. We got to know what it is. And I decided, well, I'll go to Howard University for two years. And then I'll transfer, which didn't happen. I stayed at Howard all all my undergraduate years, but went to Howard. um, And I think a lot of that was because we were in a very small town in Connecticut, um, Rocky Hill, Connecticut, where I remember this. There was a student in my class named Steve DiPietro. Steve DiPietro lived on on DiPietro Street, where there was DiPietro gas station. And he had no desire or inkling to leave that town. And for me, that was just like, oh, I'd like to see another part of the world. I don't want to be in this small town. And I had come from a very large town. And I couldn't wait to get out of there. And so I think between being in a small town and being Black and wanting to see other people who look like me, where I was going to be affirmed as a Black woman, really drove my decision to go to Howard. And literally up until the end of my sophomore year, I still thought I was going to transfer because I still had that inkling to go home um, and be closer to family and cousins. And I've always also been very politically active. My parents were politically active. My mom was a Detroit public school teacher where they went on strike every year. Um, And I was part of that process. And we ended up protesting the end of my sophomore year. I walked out of class and went into the administration building for a week. And after that, I was like, we wouldn't be doing that at Michigan State. We'd only be doing that at Howard University. And so I decided to stay and still, you know, kept in contact with obviously Michigan family. I still consider myself from Michigan, but just kept thinking there's a part of me that feels like this is my new home. I belong to a much larger community, and there were just so many different perspectives of blackness that I just wanted to explore, not just on campus, but even in the Washington, D.C. area with black politics. Um, I actually took a course in black politics and went to the Black Congressional Caucus, something I didn't know anything about till I got there. And so it just felt like I was uncovering an onion um, that I was connected to and and never got to the core of that onion. So I stayed. What were the the years that you were um, at Howard or in D.C.? 
So I came as a freshman in 1987 in the fall, graduated in 91, then stayed in the area for a while um, working in counseling and child care, long story, for another year, then went away to grad school to a number of different places and then came back to the Baltimore area, so kind of the DMV, came back there in 2000 and then left there in 2017 to come to Milwaukee. So how has this mural project resonated for you, especially when you were talking about sort of um, seeing folks that kind of look like you? For me, the mural project, I'm a very visual person. And so literally to see a mural that size with color in the middle of that campus before even knowing, you know, what the actual silhouettes were going to look like was exciting. As you know, on many college campuses, there's a particular type of architecture that buildings are supposed to look like they belong to the same institution. And institutions are very careful about what they allow and what they don't allow. And so to see literally colors show up that were not the school colors was exciting in and of itself. And then to find out that it would be literally four sisters, for me, allowed me to feel seen as a Black woman on that campus. Um, Marquette is a predominantly white institution. Um, and I, I will say, even as a professional, it feels white. Um, and so you don't often see other colleagues or other students who look like you. And even though I do diversity work, I still don't see enough. And so to literally see four beautiful women of color looking over our campus every day, it just, in some ways, it fills my soul to kind of know somebody is watching out for us representation does matter to me. And so I also appreciate that the students, regardless of how they identify, also see four women of color watching over them, knowing that our indigenous population was there before Marquette. Um, And so also realizing that that root literally is in the ground and on that mural. And so there's just something about it that on one hand disrupts the whiteness at Marquette, but also affirms the diversity at Marquette. So what would you say would be Marquette's impact or has been Marquette's impact on women of color? Wow, that's a loaded question. I think it's it's been a lot of different things. I think on one hand for women of color, particularly students, which is where I spend most of my time at Marquette, I hear a lot of students questioning whether Marquette is really for them. Um, When they start thinking about the history of Marquette and the Jesuit foundations, they see and hear white men, white priests, white Jesuits, um, and then they wonder, well, where do I intersect this story? Am I here visiting or is this truly my home? I also think that for some students, they find kind of their, their micro community within Marquette. And so once you kind of find your people, your community, those who are in your major, just like-minded people, regardless of how they identify, it allows them to feel like they're at home, but it's work. And I think for me, that is one thing I had to realize when I got to Marquette, that while people were very excited that I came, um, I didn't know some people before I got there, I had to work at creating a community such that I felt like no matter who I saw, that it was also my home too. Well, and that actually leads me to the sort of a follow-up question. What would you say has been Marquette's impact on you, your sense of self-worth? I'd say pick a day. Um, There's some days, I'll be honest, I mean, there's some days where I'm really, really challenged. 
particularly, like I said, I do a lot of diversity work and things that I think, oh, we should definitely be doing X, Y, and Z. And there's a lot of pushback of institutional courage. Are we as an institution ready to do that? And while you can find individuals to say yes, it's hard to get the institution to say yes. Um, And so as I'm doing this work and people are encouraging me to do this work, it is hard as a woman of color, a black woman to hear no. And at the same time here, it's important. No, but it's important. No, we need to advance things, but no. And so there's oftentimes where I will take things home to heart and just wonder, okay, am I in the right space? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, And then there's other days where I feel like I'm supposed to be challenging. I'm supposed to be asking those questions and maybe ask more than once so that that no turns into a yes or a maybe or maybe not right now, but next year. And so there's other days where I feel very affirmed. And I'll say part of it is because I do diversity work. I can see some of those small changes. Um, And I work with colleagues and students who are very invested in having Marquette be a more inclusive space. And so I can't say overall there are spaces where I feel affirmed all the time. But there are times and instances where, you know, I feel like this is what God has called me to do. Um, to be disruptive, if you will, and to be affirmed in what I'm bringing to the table and challenging. I'm throw this question at you because I've I've been noticing some things not only around campus but just you know just in terms of who's doing the diversity work and it seems to be predominantly women, uh, women of color, African American women, Black women. What do you think about that? Is it women's work? No. And that was a complete sentence. But no, no, it, it's not women's work. It's everybody's work. And it's not just women of color work. In order for all of us to live in an inclusive society, we all have to be equally invested and equally active and equally engaged. And so when we think about whose work it is, it's everybody's work. So when somebody kind of says, oh, today I like to take the day off and not do this work, we all notice that. We all see it. I think the challenge for women of color, including myself and Marquette, for doing this work is that we're doing our work and we're also doing somebody else's work, too. And we're doing it professionally and we're doing it personally. And so when I think back to when George Floyd was murdered, that sitting in that space and informing the institution and the leaders, you know, what should we be doing? What statements should we be making? How can we connect with our students, particularly in a virtual environment and providing spaces for them to talk and to process, I also had to get off of Zoom, get off of Teams, and do the same for myself personally. And I think that's the toll it takes on women of color who do this work, as well as men of color, that we're doing the work we're paid to do and asked to do, but we also have to do it at home. Um, And we have to do it at home to survive, literally. And we want our students to thrive. And so we're kind of in survival mode most of the days, hoping that our students, which is why I do the work, can one day come to campus and feel like they thrive. And so when you see a mural like this, you're like, I want you to have markers on campus that remind you you're here for a reason. Like you, your brown body, it is important. It is not, you know, a mistake that you hear. You didn't just slide in under admissions. You were accepted, and I want you to feel accepted every day. So who are the women of color who inspire you? I would say primarily in my family. 
my mom, um, who's still alive and lives in Madison part time of the year. So I get to spend some time with her. Um, and then my two grandmothers, um, which, again, as a young kid, I, I just thought they were grandmothers who just, you know, were, were great cooks. That that was that was how I knew them. But as I got older, learning more of their story. And so my father's mother did not finish middle school, but I saw her reading the Sunday newspaper every day from start to finish. And in my head, I thought of her as a ferocious reader. Like, wow, she reads this thick newspaper every Sunday, like every Sunday. It was because she had a sixth grade education and it took her a while to read it. But that's how she was teaching herself how to read, how to have better grammar, expanding her vocabulary. And for her, that was her homework every Sunday on top of, you know, family dinners and going to church. I also think about my maternal grandmother who, again, great cook and loved baking. And now as an adult, I love to bake. Um, And I think that's where I kind of get some of the creativity from. But to me, she was grandma. What she was doing professionally was working in a vocational school in Detroit and cooking lunches and also helping out with the baking and cooking program for the students. And they sold some of their goods as well. And so obviously she was pretty good at it. But to me, they were just people. I didn't think of them as role models. I'm not even sure that young when I think about, you know, my one grandmother passed away when I was in first grade. I didn't think of them as, you know, doing anything special. They were just my grandmothers. I also think about bigger names, if you will, um, particularly those folks who are the first in their family to go to college. And I think about my mother's professional group when I was growing up. And so she taught in public school, went to a different school. But if I had the day off, I had a day on in public school with her. (laughs) And I just remember seeing she and her friendship group being very gracious and classy and professional and just thinking like, wow, am I ever going to be like that? And even now as an adult in my 50s, I still say, I don't know that I'm as refined as they were at, at this age at all. But really just seeing them as living their lives effortlessly and knowing how much effort it takes to appear that way um, and still be great educators, great moms, for me, great aunties, and just great role models. And most of them were all educators. Something I said I would never do was go into education. And and here I sit (laughs) almost 20 years in education. What role has vulnerability played in uh, your own story? I'm a planner, um, and so when things do not go as planned, that's when you will see the vulnerability come out, not necessarily by choice, to be honest. I'm also a very flexible person, so thinking about when my family moved from Michigan to Connecticut, I was not pleased about that at all. In hindsight, it was the best thing. Um, It allowed us to get out of the Michigan bubble, if you will, and literally start seeing the world, knowing that you can always go home but you can travel, you can go to a different school, you can live in a different time zone. And so those times where I have not been comfortable are the places where I've had the most growth, but in the moment, not appreciating it at all, really fighting it every, with every bone in my body. And so now realizing that it's important to be vulnerable so that you get to that place of growth once you get out of that comfort zone and sometimes letting people in. Um, I think you know, doing some of this work around diversity, doing volunteer work, you don't have all the answers. 
And so sometimes you do have to reach out to folks and allow people to know you don't know the answer. You don't know how to, you know, get to a yes. Can you give me some advice? And I've been pleasantly surprised that people have not seen it as a deficit. They have actually kind of drawn closer to me as friends, friendly family, if you will, for doing that. But I will say it is definitely hard. And I think part of it is I grew up with the the image or the trope of the strong black woman, that whether you were doing something where you felt strong or not, at the end of the day, you were at least supposed to appear and perform that way. Yeah, and that kind of leads me to a question about the role that women of color have played in helping you negotiate those challenges when you are in the midst of this vulnerability. What's been that role? I think allowing me to be broken, um, that they provide safe space when you do feel broken, broke down, whether it's you need to just cry and let it out, whether you need to be frustrated, that again, you don't have to perform any type of blackness or femaleness. Like you can just be, it is, it's really okay. And you know, when that time is up, you'll pull it back together and they'll be your biggest cheerleaders. I mean, that they're not waiting for you to fail. They're watching you succeed and realizing that the moments that are, you know, we might perceive as as crisis or unplanned is part of the process. You know, they can see the big picture and you cannot. You do, all you see is the valley. But I think that has been the biggest gift that they've given me is knowing that there's strength in both, you know, the top of the mountain and the valley and that it's all connected. What impact do you hope to have on women of color, those coming behind you and even those who've sort of preceded you? I think my hope for them is that they have the confidence to be themselves, that no matter how many different definitions we have of blackness or women of color or women, that whatever they're bringing to the table that is truly uniquely them is more than enough, that there's no being a certain way to get a raise. There's no certain way to be smarter. If you feel smart, then you're smart, period. All you have to do is look for self-definition and self-validation. And I hope that by seeing me, they know what's possible. Um, You don't necessarily have to follow my path. My path was certainly not linear at all. Even the position I'm in right now, that was not planned. This time last year, I had no clue. But realizing that if you'll stick with yourself and keep yourself confident and true to yourself, it'll all work out. It will truly all work out. Not perfectly, not seamlessly, but it'll work out all in your favor. Sounds like faith, right? Definition of faith. Absolutely. What are your hopes for the future, your own and Marquette's? I think for me, I'm really striving, particularly after the pandemic, really thinking about work-life balance. I like to work. I like being busy. I love to learn. Um, And oftentimes I volunteer for more than I should because I'm curious and I'm nosy and I want to be involved. And at the same time, realizing that in order for me to be productive and helpful and a good contributor, I also got to take a break. And so for me personally, really focusing on that, I think for me also creativity is something that I, I don't know, I say rediscovered or leaned into during the pandemic. I ended up kind of doing a yoga teacher certification during the pandemic, started yoga a few years ago and then decided, well, I'm in the house. They do it on Zoom. I can do my 200 hours and teach virtually. And again, I think 
part of that is I got that from my mom, my grandmother, just the, you don't have to be one thing. You were made to be complex, so be as complex as you want to. I think moving forward, what I'd like to see is that the definition for women of color is so vast, it does not fit into a phrase or a sentence, that it really is multiple narratives and an entire volume of voices, languages, religions, so that no one says, you know, you've got to fit into the box, that the the box and the mold are gone. So what would you like our community to know about you and your journey? For me, I think it goes back to complexity. Um, What you see is just literally just that. It is the surface. There's so much more to who I am, what I bring to the table. I had a mentor say to me once, um, they saw me interview for a job, and they had known me for a while and said, wow, still waters run deep. You know, you always seem very calm, cool, and collected. But when we started talking to you, I had no clue how much was in you. And I'm, I'm very much a thinker. And again, I think that goes back to being an only child. You spend a lot of time in, in your head, and I still do. I think for me, professionally, I don't know what lies ahead. I didn't know that this was in front of me. If history repeats itself, there will be at least one more shift, if not two, um, before I retire, I have a ways to go. I think for me, it's about the creativity and the advancement, though, whatever it is that I do. I don't like, you know, kind of the routine. Um, I came out of student affairs, and I always say, never, never the same day twice. It's just like T-Date Max. And so I like that factor of difference and change. Um, And again, it's challenging, and it's so much more rewarding. So we've been listening to Dr. Joya Career. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Your story stands as a testament to the amazing stories in our community yet to be uncovered. Our roots say that we're sisters podcast and the mural project seek to make these stories visible. Again, thanks to our sponsor, the Marquette Forum, Marquette's Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion, and the Haggerty Museum of Art for your support for this project.